Hello everyone, this is Sarah from Hamilton. Before we get into the main subject of this video, I'd like to say that if you want to support this channel, please consider becoming a patron or a YouTube member. At Tier 3, I guarantee at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion every month if you'd like to take advantage of that. I also will allow you to make a um, one-off arrangement to have a call one time without becoming a month-to-month -month patron for $25, and you see the details in the description box of this video. I would also like to announce that from now on, all Ubi Petrus videos will be available not only through his Patreon, but through my own. So if you become a patron at any of the three tiers or a YouTube member at any of the three tiers, you will have access to all of Ubi Petrus's full videos. I'm very uh, thankful to him for that gracious offer. Um, so you get uh, both my exclusive content, though I do like to keep most of my con content universally available, and his own exclusive content. So uh, with that said, let's say a prayer, and then we'll get into the video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father who is everlasting, and thine all-holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. So what I want to talk about today is the way that we use the language of two comings of Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that this language is not incorrect. However, there are other ways to frame Jesus's ministry that I think are particularly useful when we're talking about the way that his work relates to the messianic vision of the law, the prophets, and the writings. So in order to frame this question, let me just ask you, does Moses have one coming in his ministry to Israel, or does he have two, specifically as it relates to Sinai? Because I think that this question is going to help us frame what the New Testament is doing when it talks about various aspects of Jesus's work. Moses first is the mediator of the Torah covenant to Israel. He blesses the nation, he sprinkles them with blood, and he reads to them the book of the Torah in Exodus chapter 24. But then he is hidden from the eyes of the nation. He goes up into the cloud, and they do not see him for 40 uh, days. Now, when the New Testament speaks of Jesus' messianic work, it often frames him as a, uh, the prophet who is like and supersedes Moses. Moses is described in royal terms throughout the Pentateuch. He's said to have become king in Jeshurun in Deuteronomy chapter 33. If you follow the nearest pronoun, it seems to refer to Moses and not to the God of Israel, as some translations have inserted the Lord in there, but I think it actually is talking about Moses becoming king. Kings are the ones who are responsible for building the temple and the tabernacle. Moses is, of course, the one who reveals the structure of the tabernacle to the people of Israel from God, and he is the one who oversees its construction. Uh, Moses is described in royal terms. He has authority over the nation in the way that a king would have authority of the nation, though the only way he's not a king is his rule is not um, one of succession. In Numbers 23 and 24, we have first the exodus from Egypt under Moses' leadership uh, celebrated in a poem, and then you have in Numbers 24 a prophetic vision of the Messianic age, which very interestingly, some people say that the Hebrew Bible has no place for prophecies which are not in the immediate term. It's just nonsense. Balaam says here, I see him, but he's a long way away. And then he gives three stages which are going to 
uh, transpire in the history of Israel until the Messiah comes. And actually, these three stages are quoted elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible so that the wise Israelite can set his clock uh, according to the prophetic expectation. In any case, in Numbers 24, what we have is the Messianic king described as the one who enacts a new exodus for the children of Israel. We see in Deuteronomy 30 that the new covenant with the associated transformation of our inner selves, that is the circumcision of the heart, is the key to permanent and enduring fidelity to God, which is the only way in which mankind and Israel can fulfill the mission that God willed for us. Now, the upshot of this is that we are to see the Messianic king as the fulfillment of Moses. He is the one who gives the covenant to the people, as Isaiah uh, describes the servant of the Lord. Uh, there were three um, uh, attempts to destroy Israel in the first exodus. The third one ended up producing its own uh, turning back, that is, the third one led to the transference of Moses to the household of Pharaoh, which gave him the necessary wisdom to do what he did for Israel? Just think of what he would be learning there. He'd be learning languages. Moses has to manage international relations. you got a nation of two million people. you got to go talk to the authorities in Edom if you want to go through their land. Moses knows how to do this. He's been trained in the languages of the nations. Moses knows how to write sophisticated literature. He would have learned that in the household of Pharaoh. Moses learns how to command an army as he is going to do in the book of Numbers. All sorts of things essential to Moses' mission uh, were only given to him because he had a sojourn in Pharaoh's household as indeed David had a sojourn among the Philistines. Well, the third attempt of Balaam and Balak to curse Israel produces a prophetic portrait of Israel's Messiah who's going to in, um, enact the new exodus, bring the new covenant. Now, Deuteronomy ends, I think, with a note by Ezra, as Ezra is putting the Tanakh together in its final compositional state, so that the end of the Torah is linked to the beginning of the prophets, that the end of the prophets is linked to the beginning of the writings, and so on and so forth, I think he adds a note saying that the prophet like Moses had not yet come. We have a prophecy of a prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and this note seems to indicate that the biblical authors understood this not to be a reference to the prophetic office, but a specific messianic prophet who would have face-to-face -face engagement with Israel's God, be a covenant for the people, and bring a new exodus which would bless not only Israel, but also the whole world. So analogies or types between the figure of Moses and the figure of the Messiah are internal to the Hebrew Bible. Now this event where Moses is concealed from the vision of the people and then reappears is an event which structures much of the way that the New Testament talks about Jesus. And it's important to understand that parousia, or presence with, uh, is not a one-time event. It can be used to describe that one-time event, which is the fulfillment of everything that has come before. But the Eucharist is a parousia. Jesus descends from heaven by the Holy Spirit to become present with us as the embodied um, concrete sign of God's returned indwelling to live with his people in a renewed city of God. Every time we celebrate divine liturgy, it is a miniaturized form of the second coming. This is what we say in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Remembering, therefore, all these things, the cross, the grave, the third day resurrection, the ascension into heaven, the session at the right hand, and the second glorious coming. We remember the future and thus make the future what it ought to be. That is how God pours his life into the world. He makes us the body of Christ, and it is in Christ that all things were made. So we remember God in Christ, and God remembers us in Christ, and so we draw the whole world into the presence of God. So when we read in 1 Thessalonians of 
uh, Jesus descending with the voice of an archangel and the blast of a trumpet. Think of the way that trumpets are associated with Moses' descent and God's descent in the book of Exodus. Indeed, we find that when Moses descends in Exodus chapter 34, he inspires the same reaction that God did in Exodus 19. God descends in glory in Exodus 19 and Israel steps back because they're afraid. And then the tabernacle, when it's set up, has a series of veils protecting Israel from the presence of God. The presence of God is diluted, as it were, so that Israel is able to engage with God in some way. Well, Moses in Exodus 34, he descends from the holy mountain and his face is shining with divine glory and his face needs to be veiled. Moses is uh, in Exodus 7, like God to Pharaoh. Moses has become God's own instrument because Moses has been joined with the divine operation such that whether it is God acting or Moses acting, there is after a fashion a single actor. In Exodus 40, we find that the creation week is echoed again and again, specifically the idea of finishing the creation. That same word is used. But here in Exodus 40, it flits back and forth between Moses having finished the work and God having finished the work. Moses is an extension of God's own arm. Perhaps it's no accident for this reason that the servant of the Lord, the King Messiah, is described as the arm of the Lord, the one through whom God always acts, which after all is what the Logos is all about. God always acts and energizes through the Logos. Therefore, all the Logi, which constitute the archetypes for the natures of things, of created things, all the Logi are thought in him. So I want to say all that to make uh, to lay the foundation for why I'm drawing the analogy between Moses and the Messianic king, and thus provide perhaps a different way of framing the idea of two distinct comings of Jesus. So one problem with how the second coming of Jesus is often conceived in relation to his Messianic work concerns the way that the idea of coming is understood. All too often, Jesus' second coming is understood to mean his return to earth after he has been made absent from it. He's been in heaven, so he's not on earth. Now, within this framework, the doctrine of the ascension plays very little role other than to explain why Jesus isn't walking the earth visibly right now. Now, to religious Jews who are critical of Christianity, such an explanation understandably seems ad hoc. According to what they argue, the Hebrew Bible never speaks of two comings of the Messiah. The Messiah has a single mission, and when he comes, he will carry out that mission in a single integrated work. Now, in certain ways, I think they are actually making a legitimate point. When the New Testament speaks of what we call the second coming, it speaks more often of his appearing or of his revelation. Parousia, as mentioned, means presence with. The divine presence is poured into the world when Jesus is revealed in his kingship. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is a kind of parousia. The destruction of Jerusalem reveals objectively before the eyes of all the world that Jesus as Lord and King of the world has the authority and capacity to carry out the judgments which he promised and warned of. The appearing and revelation of Jesus as the Messiah at the end of all ages, or to put it another way, at the beginning of all things, understand the history of the world right now, is just a prelude to what will come uh, at the final revelation of Jesus Christ and in the endless ages to follow. This revelation coinciding with the bodily resurrection of the dead is simply the climactic revelation of what is manifest each time that Jesus specifically or specially inspects the world and renders judgment upon it. While Jesus' 
privately vindicated as Messiah before the faces of his apostles and Paul, the destruction of Jerusalem is, in a certain way, the public revelation of this reality. By inflicting a catastrophic judgment on Jerusalem exactly 40 years after his ascension into heaven, he reveals that the ascension into heaven is not the taking away of Jesus' influence, but rather the exaltation of it. Jesus ascended into heaven not to be removed from us, but to bring us up with him. In his ascension into heaven, Jesus takes the entirety of our human nature, and thus the whole human family, consubstantial with him in our human nature, takes us all into the heavenly places. And thus in Revelation chapter 20, we find that uh, the first resurrection is the rest of the saints. Now remember, rest in the Bible does not refer to our cessation from activity. Rest rather refers to our being enthroned. We rest on a throne, and that gives us the authority to act in a new and broader way. If the only ways that you can act are with your hands, it's going to take you a longer time to do what you need to do. But when you can call things into being just by speaking, that's the kind of life, that's the kind of power which God has sitting on his throne. Now, the way that this idea of ever-moving rest in the terminology of St. Maximus the Confessor is indicated in the Bible, is indicated symbolically, is by what we see in Ezekiel's chariot. God is enthroned. He moves in exact right angles. He flies from place to place. But his enthronement being carried out through the Holy Spirit, says the Spirit was in the wheels, his enthronement, his sitting down, means that he can actually move faster. It says the Spirit was in the wheels of the chariot, well then the Spirit's put in Ezekiel, and it says the Spirit goes to dwell with the exiles. You see how God's presence works through instruments who are incorporated into that divine presence. So. I think a good way of framing the work of Jesus, uh, especially when we're dealing with the criticisms of Orthodox uh, Jews and other um, Jewish critics of, of, of the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, a good way to frame it is, is by this. Uh, rather than seeing the ascension as the end of Jesus' first coming, we should speak of and understand the first and second comings to be the beginning and the end of a single ministry, with the ascension playing an essential role in that ministry. The purpose of the Messiah is to gather all things into himself. He rectifies all oppositions. Now, it's fascinating how the idea of Jesus' work as being the unification of opposites in Maximus the Confessor has stunning parallels in Judaism, and, and including post-Christian Jewish tradition. The idea of the rectification of things that were formerly opposed or at least separated from each other, male and female, Jew and Gentile, uh, heaven and earth. This is a crucial part of Judaism's Messianic tradition. I think that if your understanding of Judaism's Messianic tradition comes from folks like Jews for Judaism, you're going to get a very restricted view of what traditional Judaism, including contemporary Judaism, has really said about the Messiah. I mean, just take Chabad Lubavitch. The Lubavitcher movement has a very spiritual vision of the Messianic mission. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, spoke of Maimonides' criterion of fighting the wars of God as being a spiritual war by which the Messiah would inscribe holiness into the, every corner of the creation by being the instrument through which his presence is communicated to the world. So this is not just a pre-Christian Jewish thing. These kinds of messianic ideologies persist in Judaism, including to this day, and Chabad Lubavitch is the most influential single 
um, traditional Jewish movement in the world. The purpose of the Messiah is to gather all things into himself. He's supposed to stitch together absolutely everything in heaven and on earth. Genesis begins with the creation of this binary pair, heaven and earth, and then the last creative work of God is the creation of another binary pair, male and female. The unification of these pairs, and thus the glorification of both, right from the beginning of the Bible, is a crucial part of the messianic work. Genesis begins with Bereshit in the beginning, and the major messianic texts, the most important or uh, primary messianic texts, uh, which we read first and then see all others in light of these, are introduced with these phrases like, in the latter days. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word that is used for latter or latter days has a relationship to the word for beginning like the word end has to beginning in the English language. That is, they're not etymologically related, but they're understood to be paired in this way. So what happens in the beginning is protological, the first creation. What happens in the end is eschatological, the renewal of creation. It is the telos or goal uh, for which all things were created. When Paul speaks of Jesus as the end of the Torah, it's not the destruction of the Torah, but the goal of the Torah. Those commandments, which we do not observe concretely anymore, are not abrogated. Rather, it is aspects of the creation which are abrogated. God rewires the world such that what was formerly unclean is now objectively different. And again, even in traditional Judaism, there are ideas like this. There is the famous um, idea of the pig being made a kosher animal in the world to come. It's not that God abrogates the commandments of the kosher diet. It's rather that God abrogates and purifies certain aspects of the world. But having permanently enfolded the earth in himself, Jesus carries earth up to heaven through the ascension, facilitating the unity of the two. In Revelation 4 to 5, he stands upon the sea of glass. And in Revelation 15, that sea of glass is seen again, but this time we see it mixed with fire. The connection is in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, where the ascended Lord, acting in his office as angel of the Lord, who's frequently called in the book of Revelation, another angel. So when you see this phrase, another angel, but there's no preceding angel, by uh, which is being distinguished by the use of the word another, that shows this is the head of the angelic hosts, the preeminent logos of God. And because the Old Covenant was administered by angels, Deuteronomy 33 and Galatians 3, 19 and following, uh, Jesus' office in that covenant is described as the angel of the Lord. And so he's called frequently throughout the scriptures, the angel of the Lord. Genesis 15, we see the angel of the Lord, or the word of the Lord. In Genesis 22, that same, uh, this same promise is ratified by the angel of the Lord. It's the same figure. An angel is a messenger. And what is the angel of the Lord? doing? Well, what's the message he is making known? It is God's character, God's life, God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness. Because as it says in Exodus 23, the father speaks of the angel of the Lord saying, my name is in him. That is my manifest present. All of my qualities are in his heart. That is why he is the messenger of the Lord. In Revelation 8, 1 to 4, this, uh, the ascended Lord, acting in his old covenant office, takes the fire of the heavenly altar, that is the uncreated divine fire, and he casts it on the earth. He fulfills the desire that he articulated in Luke's gospel to cast fire on the earth. This is the day of Pentecost. Happy Pentecost. By taking humanity up into the heavenly court and by sending that heavenly fire through the firmament, or through the sea of crystal, which is the boundary between our material cosmos and the heaven of heavens, 
sea which is created on the second day, the waters above the heavens, as it's called in the Psalms. Uh, when he sends that fire down through those heavenly waters, he creates a permanent and enduring bond between heaven and earth. I want to emphasize here, when I say heaven in this context, I'm referring to God's heaven, the great throne room. Think about the way, dramatically, that holy or holy place, but the word place is usually uh, an addition, right? So it's in brackets. Um, the middle part of the tabernacle and temple, uh, the one which is beyond the courtyard, the one that's the first room inside the temple, it's called the holy. And then there's the holy of holies. It's the same with heaven and heaven of heavens. There is a visible starry heaven that's symbolized by the holy place. And then there is the throne room of God, the heaven of heavens. Uh, they're called by the same name because there is a genuine association with them. What is in the heavens is representative and revelatory of the things which are in the heaven of heavens. But anyway, by casting this fire on the earth, Jesus fixes this enduring bond between God's throne room and our material cosmos. This is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel mentions the ladder to heaven seen by Jacob. He says in John chapter 1, Jesus says to Nathan, you will see greater things than these. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a straight reference from Genesis 27 and 28. And Jesus repeatedly emphasizes the need for him to ascend so that the Spirit might descend. Jesus has taken a body of earth and made it glorious forever. He has taken it into the heavens, and then he casts the heavens down into the earth. So a good way to think about this, if you are familiar with Orthodox Church architecture, look up. In most Orthodox churches, the ones which have a dome, what you will see is you will see Jesus looking down through either a blue surrounding or a golden one. Now, I've talked before about the correlation between blue and gold in the sense that if you hyper-pressurize water, if you make it a solid, not by freezing it, but by um, uh, putting so much of it in one little bit of space that it actually becomes effectively solid, it turns gold. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, the, uh, the waters above the heavens which separate God's throne room from our material cosmos, um, they are signified by the covering on the Ark of the Covenant, and what do you know, that is also gold. Water mixed with fire, that creates gold. So the waters above the heavens in our church architecture are symbolized by blue, through which Jesus looks, or gold, through which Jesus looks, because every church building is a representation of the entirety of creation. This is the way in which heaven and earth are joined together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning was the Logos, through whom all things are made. And so no one has ascended to heaven except him who has descended from heaven. That is the Son of Man. He descends so that we might ascend. And we descend so that others might ascend. At the consummation of creation, at the glorification of the world, at its uh, permeation in its totality by divine presence, Revelation chapter 20 says that there will be no more sea. Now in context, this is the sea of glass, not our oceans. The sea of glass is the boundary between God's heavenly throne room and our material creation. Set up in Genesis 1 as the upper boundary of heaven, denoting the space between waters above and below, mentioned in the Psalms we've discussed as the waters above the heavens. I've talked about before, uh, some people talk about the relative size of the visible heavens and the relative size of what scripture calls the first heaven or the airy heaven, the air. Um, as something which is hard to reconcile with Christianity. But actually, we need to remember that not only 
is the visible celestial heaven, much, 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 much larger than the first heaven or the air, denoting the realm below the boundary of the moon's orbit. But the third heaven, God's throne room, is much, 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 much larger than our entire material creation. So this kind of exponentiating relation of space is something which follows through at all three heavens, which I just think is, is kind of cool. Now, this separation between the heaven of heavens and our material visible cosmos is interestingly not called good in Genesis 1. Now, of course, it's not because it's evil, but because it is inherently temporary. Insofar as goodness is that model to which the creation is teleologically directed, because the creation is good insofar as it represents and reveals the goodness of God. We call a thing good the closer it corresponds to its archetype. A perfect circle is the archetypal mathematically perfect circle. A drawn circle can be better or worse, and it's better or worse according to its degree of correspondence with that perfect circle. Moses' beholds the goodness of God when Moses beholds the name of God because goodness is rooted in the inner life of God and creation is a theater for the revelation of communion between the persons of the Trinity and thus between God and man, man and man, creation and man. This, uh, these waters above the heavens are something like a bridal veil. It separates the visible glory of God from the creation. And as Noah removed the covering of the ark in Genesis 8, I think verse 19, so also this covering, which I've mentioned as the uh, correspondent to the waters above the heavens in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant has a covering over it, which is the uh, boundary point and thus also the mediating principle between God and creation. Well, this covering will be removed on the final day. It's like scaffolding. Um, it's needed to build the unified heaven-earth cosmos, but when that cosmos is built, it is no longer necessary. We see how the consummation is innately linked with the redemption worked at the first coming and the ascension. It is simply the completion of the mutual enfolding of heaven and earth through the Holy Spirit and in the Messiah who gathers things together in himself. Think about the way that the Gospel of Matthew works. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. It ends with Jesus saying, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is the uh, revelation and instrument through which the presence of God takes the material cosmos into itself. And the church, as the embodied presence of Jesus in the world through the Eucharist, is essential in guiding point A to point Z. The church is the focal point of the renewed humanity, and thus we're supposed to churchize the entirety of creation. Acts chapter 1 also confirms this way of elucidating the one ministry of Jesus. Uh, Luke speaks of his previous book as describing what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is the history of the spirit-animated church, the body of Christ, is simply the ongoing ministry of the Messiah. The Messiah arrived on schedule and was exalted as Israel's Messiah and thus the heir of all creation. The history of the church is not a period between two comings, but the present work of the Messiah in the nations. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. According to the apostle, Jesus is presently enthroned and he is subjecting all things to himself. When he destroys every rule, authority, power, and dominion, he will deal a final death blow to death itself. 
consecrating the finished work to his heavenly Father. The Eucharist will have been disseminated through every inch of creation, and divine life will flow from top to bottom as fully and richly on earth as it is in heaven. The Messiah is the conqueror. As the book of Revelation says, he comes conquering and to conquer. Jesus is the fulfillment of Joshua. Joshua is the name Jesus. Joshua subdued the whole land in Joshua 18.1 in a text which echoes uh, Genesis 1.26-28 where Adam is called to exercise dominion and subdue the earth. Likewise, Jesus is the fulfillment of David who extends the boundaries of Israel to its promised borders and enacts a new exodus by defeating the Philistines who are, according to Genesis 10.13, related to the Egyptians. Jesus' blade is the Holy Spirit. Flame and sword are frequently associated in Scripture. They are sacrificial implements. One divides the sacrifice and offers it up in fire. You cut the sacrifice into pieces, and then it goes up in a single puff of smoke, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Jesus is the great high priest who sacrificially offers the whole creation in himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is both sword and fire. He cuts us up in suffering and reintegrates us into glory through the resurrection of Jesus and his uh, ascension and session in heaven. In Revelation, where the work of Christ and the church is revealed through four horsemen, taken from Zechariah, where they work for God and symbolically manifest the divine presence in the four cherubic chariots, of the temple. So you know the chariot of God in Ezekiel. Here we see four manifestations of that chariot. This is the divine presence riding on the people of God. Now the people of God are called in scripture at this period of history the four winds of heaven. That's because wind is spirit and the spirit goes to dwell with the exiles as they're spread abroad as the four winds of heaven. They are the locus of spiritual energy through which God brings changes on the world. So that's why in Daniel chapter 7, we see the Gentile sea is being stirred up by the winds of heaven. Daniel 7, on another note, is a vision which shows a uh, messianic context for Genesis 1. So we've got a, a great cosmic sea. We've got wind, just like the spirit hovered over the surface of the waters, so on and so forth. And then there are seven instances of, and I looked, uh, showing us the seven creation days fulfilled in this great uh, vision of Daniel 7. So these four horsemen are Christ riding the church. In each case, in my opinion, I have a video on the four horsemen. You don't have to agree with me, but uh, I think it's it's correct. Um, these uh, The four horsemen ride forth with a great army. So Revelation 19, Jesus rides as conqueror on the white horse with a great heavenly army behind him. That's the church. He rides forth with a great army to conquer all nations. Uh, and we hear... Uh, in Revelation, that a third of mankind is killed. Now, but the root of this is actually in Zechariah. And in Zechariah, by comparing it to Revelation, we can see that this death is a death by baptism, the death unto resurrection, not a death unto death. Zechariah speaks of a third of the city of Jerusalem being glorified and redeemed. And in Revelation, mankind is used specifically for Israel. And the root of this is, I think, in Daniel 7 and elsewhere, where Nebuchadnezzar is said to be made to stand with the heart of a man. So I think, and he gets that through Daniel. That could be a whole other video, but I just want to 
mark down a note to say I'm not just asserting this. There are reasons to, to, to make this association. You don't have to agree with me, but I do think I'm right. Um, the dichotomy between two kinds of death goes back to Genesis 15 and, of course, all the way back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 15, Abraham divides the sacrificial beasts in two and then drives away the birds of prey, after which the Spirit of God, the glory of God in fire, passes through the dividing animals, spiritually uniting them together while Abraham is, a, is in a deep sleep. This is the, the last time this word for deep sleep, which is a completely different word than just regular sleep, last time this was used in Genesis 2, and what do you know? Adam is cut in two, he's united back together through union with his wife, and he is called for the first time Ish, which is a pun on the Hebrew word for fire or Esh, so what do you know? You see the Spirit of God, the glory of God as fire going between the two halves of the animals. I don't think this is a self-maledictory oath, as many people do. I think this is a, a sign of God stitching everything together through the sanctified work uh, that is promised in the Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenant. Remember, the whole point of the Mosaic Covenant is to create a place where God will dwell with his people in the tabernacle. The whole Torah is centered on that sanctuary. The curse of the covenant is to be divided in two and then left that way. So Abraham uh, divides the animals in two, and then he drives away the birds of prey, and uh, the Spirit of God passes through the two halves of the animal, unites them back together, spiritually speaking. But if he didn't drive away those birds of prey, and birds of prey symbolize unclean spirits, the chief of which is the devil. So the devil, remember, serpent can fly. This is really an important thing. In, in scripture, serpents and angels are very closely associated. We see flying seraphim or flying serpents in the book of Numbers. Um, and we're told of the serpent that he will eat dust and man returns to dust and death. So he consumes the damned. The damned wholly submit themselves to his will. And the way that he works is very different from the way God works. The way God works, when we're united to him, we're more ourselves than we ever were before. Submitting to the devil means it's a zero-sum game. The more, uh, uh, more your own will is realized, the less his is. And so he assimilates things into himself, just destroying, not glorifying. But that's symbolized by being consumed by birds of prey. You see in Revelation 18, you see unclean spirits and unclean birds are said to signify each other. And that's because birds as a whole signify spirits, so unclean birds are going to be unclean spirits. And this is shown in Ezekiel 38 to 39. 38 to 39, the enemies of God, led by Gog, which I think is a, it's rooted in the prophecy of Numbers 24, that the, Messi that the Messiah's kingdom will be higher than Gog. And that in turn, I think, goes back to Og, who was just defeated. And Og is a Nephilim, a literal, as far as you can get literally, seed of the serpent. Now, death by baptism is really not actually a foreign concept. This isn't an arbitrary thing that I've made up. Death by baptism is precisely what happens in the flood. The age of the church is the flooding of the world by the water of the Spirit. The rebels drown in it, but those who turn are baptized and glorified by it, producing a great harvest as Jesus speaks of in the parable of the sower. A seed has to fall into the earth and symbolically die. It goes to the place of the dead under the earth, and then it bursts forth in new life. That's why Job, throughout the book of Job, keeps praying that God's going to kill him. Kill me! so that I can sprout again as a tree sprouts when it is watered. And that's the context, theologically, for Job's very clear affirmation of the bodily resurrection of the dead, something I think mankind always knew about. It was preserved by Moses and the prophets. They expected a resurrection from the dead. 
Um, and then when it's a contextually appropriate, it's spoken of explicitly, like in the Psalms and like the Book of Job, like Ecclesiastes, etc., etc. Uh, that a conquering king be a kind of evangelist and that conquest be done through evangelism is actually not something that's new to the New Testament. Joshua and Joseph are linked together. Joshua himself is a descendant of Joseph. He's the only other figure in the whole Bible that dies at the age of 110, just like Joseph did. And Joseph is a conqueror, but he's a conqueror through his work enlightening the eyes of the nations who were willing to hear. Remember how conquest happens through the chariot of God, which is itself a revelation of the divine presence. That is, to con be conquered by God means that you are incorporated into his house. Uh, you are now under his sovereign authority, which means, in liturgical terms, you are holy to the Lord. Now, how does Joseph do that? Well, Joseph buys up the whole land and he gives it to the holy Egyptian priesthood. Remember, they're descendants of Noah. I mean, they offered sacrifice. Noah offered sacrifice. Gentiles offered sacrifice too. It's not necessarily idolatry to have a Gentile priesthood. You can have a Gentile priesthood which worships the God of heaven. And that's what Joseph does. Joseph buys up the world and he consecrates it to God through linking it to the priesthood. And actually, this idea of buying up the world is linked very closely with the idea of conquest, which we see in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the words for wealth is actually the same word as army. And you can actually see the connection here if you think about it. What does an army do? Invade the land, you take over some. You take over what you invade. Money does the same thing. Wealth does the same thing. You buy up some land, has the same effect as conquering that land. We say Jesus redeems us. He redeems the creation. He buys it up because he's got an infinite plenitude of divine riches with which he can buy up the world. We see two dimensions of this conquering work. Um, in Joshua and Joseph. Joshua destroys the nations who are unwilling to submit to God, though he also consecrates some. The Gibeonites, for example, what do they do? They serve the tabernacle. Rahab serves the God of heaven. So both do both seem to do both. Joseph would have had the authority to carry out the death penalty, though it's not described in the book of Genesis. But we see both can do both. Um, they're, uh, they shade into each other in really interesting ways. Now this illustrates the twofold nature of Jesus's messianic task. He both judges and glorifies, judges in the sense of pronouncing a negative sentence. Matthew 25 in this understanding can be seen as something of an unfolding reality. The son of man ascends into the heavenlies. He comes to the throne of God. He is enthroned and becomes the face through which God's presence is revealed to the world. And all nations are gathered before him on the stage of history. He sorts the sheep from the goat throughout the history of the world, bringing this judgment to a definitive end at the final great, great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. Remember how Jesus's quote-unquote second coming is described as a appearing or a revelation. It reveals visibly and totally what is already fundamentally true. The great white throne is the very throne on which Jesus sits now. But the veil is removed and Jesus' reign is visibly proclaimed and enacted in every square inch of creation. The point of all of this is to say that Jesus' work of conquest is the quintessential messianic task. Kings are conquerors and David is a great conqueror. Um, Solomon, in a different way, is a great conqueror. Uh, Solomon is a conqueror in the era of peace. Uh, in Solomon's time, Hiram gives the uh, wealth of his nation and has it consecrated to God. And as everyone is present in each of their works, 
everyone is present in that which they produce, well, that means that Tyre is present with God because God's eyes are always on the builders of the Holy Temple. We see this in our liturgical tradition. What a blessing it is to contribute to the building of the church because that means that every time the liturgy is celebrated there, they are specifically praying for you. This, that this conquest be accomplished globally and through the sword of the Spirit is not an arbitrary allegorization. This is the organic unfolding of what we read about in Moses and the Prophets. The heart of liturgical theology is, after all, that it is Christ who baptizes. It is Christ who celebrates Eucharist. Jesus is concealed from our sight in that the throne room of God is veiled by the waters above the heavens, and those that veil is not to be wholly removed until the final day. But this idea of concealment is not arbitrary. Daniel 7 and Zechariah 3, among other texts, spoke of the Messiah as the high priest who ascends to the throne of God in a messianic day of atonement. The clouds of heaven in Daniel 7 are the clouds of incense on which the high priest moves from courtyard to holy place to holy of holies. That is, it is an ascent because inward is upward in the logic of the tabernacle. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The reason there are golden poles which are run horizontally through the tabernacle is because it is symbolically speaking upholding vertically the tabernacle so that the holy of holies is the heaven of heavens. So when we see the son of man, son of Adam, remember high priest is a new and glorified Adam. We see that in Leviticus 8 to 10 and elsewhere. Um, when we see the son of Adam ascending on clouds of heaven, we're looking at a day of atonement. And Zechariah 3 tells us explicitly that this is the day on which the sin of the land is taken away. And this is a messianic day of atonement because who does it? It is my servant, the branch. That's a messianic title. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, as we've talked about before. And what do you know? This, the name of the one who is a sign of my servant, the branch, is Jesus. It is Yehoshua, Joshua, the high priest. The Day of Atonement is the feast where the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. Jesus ascends into the heavenly sanctuary and he builds a ladder down to earth by the fire of the Spirit. It is only natural, given this logic, that he is largely concealed until the final day. This is not an innovation of the New Testament. It's rooted in the logic of the Tanakh and the architecture of the sanctuary where there is a veil separating these two parts of God's world. Thus, Jesus, as the Messiah of Israel, has a single and unbroken ministry, not two. His crucifixion and resurrection began that high priestly ministry. In a larger sense, of course, his whole incarnation is conducting that ministry. The ascension was necessary for that ministry to continue. Presently, he does what King Messiah was always expected to do. He conquers and enlightens the nations. The final day, what we call the second coming, is not so much a return of the Messiah and a distinctive set of accomplishments fulfilling heretofore unfulfilled messianic prophecies, as it is the revelation of what was already true and the completion of prophecies whose fulfillment began with his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension and continued to expand in the heavenization of the world through the church until the eighth day eschatological Sabbath. It is my view that there is not a single prophetic text in the Hebrew Bible which remains totally unfulfilled. There are not two distinct sets of messianic prophecies, each associated with one of the two comings. Rather, the entirety of the messianic vocation, having been set forth in the Tanakh, is realized in the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and vindication of Jesus in AD 70, which begins the conquest of the world, 
seven trumpets blow, just like seven trumpets blow Jericho Falls. Here, seven trumpets blow in heaven, Jerusalem Falls. Uh, and having been realized, this work continues to be filled up until the day when it is fully filled, that is, fulfilled. A stone cut without hands, that is, a altar, we see this in Daniel 2, grows until it fills the whole creation. Now, altars are miniature holy mountains, so what do you know? In Revelation 21, we see uh, the dimensions of the city of God match only either a pyramid or a cube, but the fact that you've got a river which is flowing downwards in the city of God tells us that what we're looking at is a pyramid. In other words, the whole creation becomes a holy mountain because the divine presence fills all creation. That is what it means for the Messiah to complete his mission.